Good morning. This morning, I want you to open your Bibles again to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, and we're going to start in at verse 41 this morning. And I want you to read this short but somewhat familiar portion of Scripture to place it in our minds. And then we're going to look at it, I trust, in a beneficial way. So let's read it first. Mark 12, the last four verses of Mark 12, starting at verse 41. And he, that is Jesus, sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting in money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had all she had to live on. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you with our Bibles open now. Your words are in front of us. Help us to see what you want us to see today. Help us to see you. Help us to see ourselves and to see your Son more clearly. Let the thoughts and words that I say be your words and honoring of you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Whenever I examine a text for a sermon and what's been written about that text by the great expositors of the text in the past, it seems to come alive to me. And it seems to make more sense. And things become more clear. And sometimes, my understanding takes a turn, as it did this week. Whenever I've heard someone teach on this passage, which we just read, it's always about sacrificial giving. As I studied it this week, I learned that almost all theologians have understood these verses in that way. Jonathan Edwards, Charles Spurgeon, John Calvin, and almost all the others. And the idea of sacrificial giving is certainly made there, and it's an important point, and I'll try and bring it out. But I learned of another way to look at this, and we'll get into that after we look at the first which is about sacrificial giving. So just a short review. We're in the Passion Week, in the final week, in the earthly life of Christ. In about 48 hours or so, a couple of days, he'll be hanging on the cross. It's late in the day on Wednesday, and Christ has now said all that he is going to say to the Jewish leaders here in the nation of Israel. 
What we've been studying for the past couple of weeks has now come to a close. Again, what you had there in these weeks were the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all trying to pin Christ in a corner of some kind, trying to discredit him. And they, of course, as you remember, ended up utterly destroying their own credibility in the process. Last week, while they were walking away with their tails between their legs, Jesus proceeded to give you and me a profile of what it is that these religious con artists look like. And then, really for our own benefit, he asked the disciples, and then he asked you and me to be constantly aware of these kinds of religious leaders, fakers, that are going to be coming our way. It's very important that you and I heed that counsel if we are to keep our understanding of the Word of God intact. Now, one of the things that I find compelling about these particular four verses this morning is that these are the final words of Christ spoken in the public eye. After this, he will be talking to his disciples in a very private setting. And then lastly, He's going to be before the various courts as he is standing trial. He's not going to say too much there. He's going to be saying absolutely nothing to Herod when he's before him. And so what we have here now are the very last final public words words of Christ. So now we are, we place kind of an importance on last words, don't we? a loved one, a respected friend, someone in whom we have trusted has come to the end of their life. Whatever they have to say in those final hours, those are going to be of great importance. They're going to be speaking only the things that are tremendously important to them. And so we take note of the very last subject that Christ speaks of in the private realm in the public realm. So now to give you a bit of flavor for the scene here that we're about to read, it's taking place in an area of the temple called the Court of the Women. So you can see that temple up there, hopefully. Take a look now at this rendering of what we believe the temple complex looked like. When you and I think of the temple, we tend to think of a huge church building. But understand, this is a massive structure. This structure was not built for a single congregation, but rather for worship of an entire nation. In the outer courts surrounding the complex, outside of the building itself, was the courts of the Gentiles. In these Jewish feasts, The Gentiles could go into that area, but could go no further. They would be allowed in there for commerce or what other interests they had, but they could go no further than those outer courts. Now, the court of the women is this large square court inside that court, this one here. Inside the court walls at the bottom, and it's called the court of women, not because women went in there, but rather because Jewish women could go no further than there. 
And as you went in further, if you were a man, that's called the gate of Nakanor. And you would have the court of the priests and the court of Israel. And you could go in further than that into the structure and you'd find the temple where you had the holy place and the most holy place. In the enlarged view of the court of women, that is where the offerings would be collected. This court of women alone is about 40,000 square feet. There were several thousand people in there at a time. On each side of the court was the treasury where the Jews were to put in their various offerings. A sizable portion of these offerings would eventually line the pockets of the temple leaders. And Christ is now getting in the way of that. And that's one of the chief reasons that they want him dead. Now, in our text here, evidently Jesus and his followers are getting ready to leave the temple. They're passing by one of the gates that leads into the court of women. And a very vivid contrast begins to capture the attention of Jesus. He enters into the court of women area where Mark's gospel tells us that they took a seat and began to observe these various people putting in their offerings. Verse 41 says, And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many people put in large sums. So what is the treasury? It was a place that the leaders had designated for people to deposit their money. They had set up 13 shofar, trumpet-shaped vessels, in which people dropped their money. And people would go by in a very open courtyard, and they would publicly put their giving on display. The treasury is actually the word gaziophilikion, from two Greek words, gaza, meaning treasury, and philake, meaning prison. So a treasury prison. Once you dropped your coins in, they were held in there. This is the real center of false religion. It's about the treasury. It's about the money. Luke 16, 14 says, The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. So we know the Sadducees, who ran the temple franchises, were lovers of money. So were the Pharisees and the scribes. Mark eleven seventeen says, And as he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. As these leaders exhorted money out of the people for sacrifices and coin exchange, false religion is always about the money. When you get to the treasury, you get to the heart of false religion. In the parallel passage to this in Luke 21, verse 1, it says, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. The first Greek word in this verse says, looked up. And it tells us that Christ directed his eyes toward a pair of givers that he would be about to point out. And then the next verb is saw. He looked up and saw. 
It means to discern, to perceive. It speaks of understanding. It's the idea of some intuitive knowledge. We're told that Jesus and the disciples are watching how these people gave. What he physically saw concerning the rich guys, we're not told. But you might imagine here that these guys are coming in without any reverence in what they're doing. Maybe they're laughing or carrying on. We don't know. Maybe they're parading their wealth. But maybe they're drawing attention to themselves. In fact, that's what we saw last week. It's like the person who gets their picture in the paper holding that giant cardboard check. I donated a million dollars. Look at me. Now, whether they're doing anything like that, we don't know. But what we do know, and we'll soon discover here in a bit, we do know that Jesus is not impressed with what they are offering. Now to verse 42. And the poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And here we have now this contrast that has captured the attention of Christ. You've got this poor little widow coming in here, so we know that she has been through some trauma in life. How long ago, we don't know. Secondly, we're told that she, has, she is poor, no doubt, in part, because she was widowed. The word for poor here means destitute. It means no safety net. It has the idea of a powerlessness to it. And she put in her two teptons, or leptons, the smallest coin in circulation at the time, which would amount to about a fifth of one of our pennies today. So in a human perspective, this widow is not offering a whole lot, is she? Now, you would think it would take quite a bit to impress God, the God of the universe, would it not? I mean, just how is it that you impress God, who knows everything, who has everything, who can do everything? It would be pretty tough to impress him, right? And so you hear you have these rich people, They are no doubt making as much noise as they can, sounding like someone dumping coffee cans of coins into one of those Coinstar machines at the local market. The roar of the coins as they go down, the horn. And then you have this woman who puts in, plink, a fifth of a cent. Now, you wouldn't think much about a fifth of a penny would impress the God of the universe, But the economy of God operates very, very differently than the economy of man does. So let's go to verse 43. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who were contributing to the offering box. Notice now just what it is that gets the great that impresses our great God and Savior. Jesus wants his disciples to zero in on this particular phrase. His last words spoken in public, he wants the future leaders of the church, these guys, to get it. He says, truly I say to you, and the force of this phrase in this text is, look, contrary to how you've looked at this before, this is God's truth. 
Well, what is that truth? What is this insight that he wants to deeply embed into the church leadership? The truth is that in God's economy, this woman has put in more than all these rich guys put together. The amount itself doesn't matter. So Jesus is emphatic with this. He says, truly I say to you, because understand these guys weren't getting this. And the truth is that most of us don't really get it either. You see, our paradigm, man's view, what we tend to look at when it comes to the work of the church, we look at the amount of the gift, the size of the contribution. And what that really does drive us to is one of two equal and opposite errors. On one hand, those of us who have very little, we're barely making our bills from month to month. We have very little discretionary income at all. Most of us have been there. Some of us are there now. Most of us tend to think, well, there's absolutely no point in my putting a dollar in each week, or maybe even two or five. What in the world would the church do with that small amount? Why bother at all? That's carnal thinking. That's not spiritual thinking. Friends, that is completely missing the idea of what the Bible has to say about giving. Now, the other error is, if I put in 500 bucks, the church ought to really be able to do something with that. The church ought to be pretty happy. Again, completely wrong concerning the biblical position on giving to the work of the church. Now, what is the common thread here? Both errors are missing the mark. The chief error is, is both positions uh, are concerned with what the church thinks. The first position, what, the world, what in the world will the church do with only $2? And the second position, boy, the church ought to be really happy with 500 bucks. It does not matter what the church thinks. It only matters what the Lord thinks. Let me say that again. It does not matter what the church thinks. It only matters what God thinks. Now let's eliminate a couple of stumbling blocks right out of the gate. Does God need money? Is God trying to make sure that he gets his bills paid each month? Is God struggling to make ends meet? Of course not. That's ridiculous. In 1 Chronicles 29, 14, David says to God, But who am I? And what is my people? That we should be able thus to offer willingly, for all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. And this is from David, the richest, richest person of the time. You see, the principle is right here. He has given us everything. When we give anything to him, the only way we are able to give it is because he has given it to us in the first place. When we give to God, he is in need of nothing. We do not enrich God by our giving. God owns everything, even all our money. And because he owns everything, he doesn't need anything. There's an inherent logic in that. He doesn't need our money to establish his kingdom or to build his church. If we don't understand that, then whenever, whenever 
there is an opportunity to call or give, we may begin to think immediately wrongly as if somehow or another God himself is in need and that we are the key to supplying a want that is represented there. Now, what the Bible says is that it is a privilege to give, to invest our resources for the issues of eternity. And that's why the Bible makes it so clear all the way through that the things that are unseen are the real things, and the things that are seen are the unreal things. And it's those seen and unreal things which we are tempted to make the focus of our concern. Stumbling block two is a little more real, a little bit more real, but it's just as much of a stumbling block. Is the church being going to fold? Is the local assembly going to fold if I don't personally give to it? Nope, it's not. You want to know why? Because if God is doing a work in the church and God wants that work to move forward, it's going to go on with or without you. I do care if you give in a spiritual sense because I don't want you to be denied of the tremendous benefit that you receive as a giver. You'll get this in just a bit if you don't already. Listen, the primary purpose of a believer's giving is for the believer themselves. Now, there's obviously a secondary benefit of the local church being able to pay their bills and to meet their needs. I think we get that, but understand the primary benefit of giving accrues not to those receiving the offering, but to the person who is giving the offering. Do the bills get paid? Do the needs get met? Yes, that is how God tends to meet the needs of a local assembly. But that is secondary to what the authority of the word of God is trying to set up for the believers given in the scriptures. And so again, understand the higher and greater spiritual purpose of giving accrues to the giver themselves. Well, how does it do that? Number one, whatever you spend in this world on yourself, whatever you spend in a temporal sense, is lost forever. It does not pass through death's door. It goes no further than death's door. But whatever it is that you and I give to God in God's eternal work, in God's eternal service, that is spending that is achieving eternal worth right now. Jim Elliott said it well. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Now, there's great wisdom in that. Think it through for a minute. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Now, if you don't understand the Bible's teaching on rewards in the eternal realm, if you don't subscribe to the reality of where this entire redemptive process is going someday, well, then naturally, none of this is going to make sense to you. If that's where you're at, that's okay, but let me encourage you Stay on the path. One day, this is going to make great sense to you. There is a whole lot at stake here, and we're talking about eternity. There's no way to minimize the importance of that. 
The second thing God has in mind in your giving, and really probably more important thing, the thing he's trying to do, is he's trying to work, um, trying to do a work of separation in your heart, a work we call sanctification and transformation. He's trying to separate you, in a sense, from your attachment to worldly things, from your attachment to that which is temporal or temporary, that he might set you apart for his eternal purposes. Now, that one worldly possession, which is typically the most difficult for you and me to part with, to be separated from, is, of course, our money. By the way, it's the money that God has given you, and it's still his money. When you learn to invest what God has allowed you to have, at least temporarily, when you learn how to invest in the lives of other human beings and specifically for the work of the gospel moving forward in the lives of others, you are then beginning and only then beginning to perform the purpose for what you were created. Now, having said all that, the great news is, and the bottom line is the amount you give does not matter. It's not the amount, it's the heart. Jesus is not impressed with the rich people putting in large sums. Then here you have this poor woman. She is left completely destitute. There is no safety net. And she puts in the offering box two small coins, and God, manifested in the flesh, is looking at her, and he's saying, now pay attention. Right there, that right there, that's impressive. That's something that I care about. Now just why is that? Why is it that Christ is more impressed with her tiny offering than all the cash of these rich folks? It's a great question. And Jesus gives us a great answer in the next verse, verse 44. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had, to live on. The Greek word here, translated as abundance, means to superabound. It means what's over and above. It has the idea of what's left over. And so, they out of their surplus put into the offering, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. Now, we understand the depth of that contrast, right? The woman gave all she had, and the others gave out of what was left. They gave out of what they didn't need. They gave the leftovers. That's what we're being told. Here, this woman gave out her poverty, do we understand that? She gave out of her need, and she needed those two coins. Giving what God values is giving sacrificial. In other words, God is not looking at how much you give. He's looking at what's left. Man is looking at what is given. God sees what is left. God is looking at what it costs you to give. Why? Because God is looking for what? Sacrificial giving. And why is that? 2 Corinthians 3 and Romans 8 tell us 
that we who are made in the image of God are being transformed more and more into his likeness. If we're being transformed more and more like, to be like him, what act or what action do you suppose that is going on to move us more and more in that direction? Well, that would be the act or the exercise of sacrifice. Jesus, of course, sacrificed his very life on the cross for you and me. It is the act of sacrifice that is really at the core of the gospel and what God is trying to produce in you and me. The objective of this work of separation that God is seeking to bring forth in your life is teaching you to live a kind of glad-hearted, sacrificial life. Paul gives us this wisdom in 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 through 8, where he says, The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God doesn't want begrudging sacrifice. That doesn't work. God loves a cheerful giver. If you ask your child to do something and they say, ah, I guess I'll do it, you might be satisfied with that because the job is getting done. But God's not pleased with a response like that. God is after delight. He does not want anything to do with begrudging sacrifice. Hebrews 12.2 says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Did you see that? It was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. Is this starting to make sense to you? God is looking for glad-hearted sacrificial giving because that's the way in which you resemble his son the most. It's something we grow into. And as you're growing in sacrifice, you are growing into the likeness of his son. You're being transformed into his image. And as Christ, after his sacrifice, sat down at the right hand of God, That was his joy, his reward. So it was, so it is as well that the Bible tells us we will become, and I can't hardly believe this, joint heirs with Christ. That is, all he has will be ours. We will be greatly rewarded beyond our ability to conceive it. How are we made into the image and likeness of God? By doing what he did, sacrificing. But I learned another way to look at this passage when I read Pastor John MacArthur's sermon about this. MacArthur sees this passage as part of a larger context and flow. MacArthur observes that Jesus is very shortly going to the cross. This is not any place for Jesus to give us instruction on giving. He says, this isn't about giving. This is about taking. This section of Mark from chapter 12, 38 on to chapter 13, verse 27 is all 
in a judgment context. Judgment. The flow of thought started last week in verses 38 through 40. Remember, these chapter and verse numbers were not part of the original text, but added later to help organize the scriptures. So this whole section flows together from 1238 to 1327. Mark 12, 38 to 40, if you recall from last week, it says, And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like the greetings in the marketplace and have the best seats in the synagogues and at the places of honor at the feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense they make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. There is a parallel passage in Matthew of this scene, which Eliot also covered last week. Let's read the first part of it now to give us the rest of the context and the feeling for the subject of this whole section. And that is in Mark 23, verses 1 through 15. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and Pharisees, sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts, and the best seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbis, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself would be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child as hell as yourselves. Note the judgment that Jesus gives here. The word Jesus uses is woe, which means to damn or condemn. And you see it start in the verses, woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. And it's repeated six more times in this passage as it goes on. When we read ahead to Mark chapter 13, we see that it begins with Jesus predicting the destruction of the temple. Then he discusses the signs and the end of the age. Then the abomination of desolation. And then the coming of man, coming of the Son of Man. MacArthur observes this this whole section of Mark from 1238 right through chapter 13 talks about the coming judgment. And MacArthur observes the widow and Jesus' description of her in this way. Quote, And Jesus comments, 
that she gives more than anybody else because she puts in everything she had. Now the question comes, what is this? Why? What does this have to do with anything? Universally, I say that with an informed mind, universally, this woman is presented as a model of dutiful, faithful giving against the ugly backdrop of the corrupt corrupt thieves and robbers among religious leaders of Israel. She's seen as a breath of fresh air, as a widow in a dark room. She's seen as a contrasting person, a noble, godly woman who gives sacrificially. That's really a stretch. It doesn't say anything about that in Scripture. The only thing it says is, a poor widow came, in verse 42, dropped in a couple of coins. That's all it says. We don't know anything about her. We certainly don't know what her motive was. We have the comment of Jesus that the two coins she put in, and that was it. That was all she had. So what is she in the story? MacArthur says, I tell you what she is. She's a victim. She's a victim. A victim of what? She's a victim of the system. She is the ultimate victim of a system that devours widows' houses in verse 40. That's the connection. This has nothing to do with Christian giving, unless you think Christian giving is give everything you have, take a vow of poverty, go home, and die. Where in the Bible, he says, is a Christian principle of giving everything you have and go home and die. That's not in the Bible. Not at all. It makes no sense. And by the way, the people who gave other than the woman, there's no judgment rendered on them. Jesus doesn't condemn that. Why why aren't they made the model? MacArthur goes on to describe the Jewish religious system of the day. He, Jesus, doesn't say the rich had a bad attitude when they gave a lot or that the woman had a good attitude when she gave everything. He doesn't say anything about the motivations of any attitudes at all. Her outward action is simply an evidence of what the system did to widows. You want blessing of God? Give your money. She's destitute. She's got two cents left. She says to herself, either I take my two cents and buy my last meal, or I do what they tell me, send them the money, and God will bless me. Does that sound like a TV preacher to you? That's the system. Send me your money. If you're down to your last penny, send me your money. Open the floodgates. God will bless you if you send me the money. It was a den of robbers, and they were stealing it from the worst off, the lowest, the most destitute. This isn't so much about attitudes in giving or amounts in giving. This is to teach us about corrupt religion. Beware the false shepherds, the false teachers, who take the last coins of the widow's purse to fill their coffers under the pretense that that kind of giving is the path to blessing. That's the prosperity gospel. He continues, There's nothing in her about the Lord... There's nothing in her about the Lord loved her. She was in the kingdom. There's nothing in here about that. Okay, you disciples, you need to follow her example, so take the bag with all the money we've got. 
and go in there and give it. That's the last thing he would have told them. Why would you put your money in a robber's den? You wouldn't commend that. She was the victim. There's no invitation for the disciples to imitate what she did. Emptied their pockets, emptied the little purse that they carried. It would have been a perfect time to do that, right? So MacArthur sums up his take on the passage this way. Quote, Isn't this obvious? If you saw a widow give her last two cents to some religious organization in the hope that she should purchase salvation or purchase blessing or buy healing or buy prosperity, you wouldn't commend her. You'd want to stop her. And you'd want to shut down that religious system that preys on the desperate. This act did not please our Lord. She's simply, she's simply been taught, and she bought into a system that destroyed her. No praise is given of her act or her attitude. She's caught in the corruption of the system at the hands of those wretched leaders. She has given her last coins to a false religion. Jesus is angry, and that's why he'll destroy the den of robbers. Judgment came in 70 AD, and it continues now on that temple, on that city, and on that land until Jesus comes again. He continues, you know this continued on throughout history. For Martin Luther and the Reformation, it was the Catholic Church abusing the poor in his mind and validating the whole system. They were building these massive cathedrals. They were building St. Peter's in Rome. They were building it from the money of the poor, the destitute, the impoverished people to whom they were selling indulgences to build St. Peter's, promising the people that for their money, their sins would be forgiven. When it came so, became so abusive, Luther reacted and the people reacted and you had the Protestant Reformation. MacArthur continues his summary. I've been in cities around the world where I've talked with people in cathedrals and I've asked the question a number of places. Why are none of the cathedrals ever finished? Why do they keep building them? And the answer is because the church can tax the people as long as construction is going on. Sometimes it goes on for a thousand years. The history of the Roman church in the world is a history of massive, unbelievable wealth at the top out of the pockets of the destitute and the poor trying to buy their way to heaven. In a perhaps more familiar role for some of us, the largest segment of givers to the charismatic prosperity gospel preachers are single women, desperate for healing, desperate for money. Sometimes they are promised money and health, and the new one is a spouse or a man. That's right, if they send in their money, they'll get that. So I say, Mrs. MacArthur, Woe to you who sell your miracle water and your miracle claws that promise to heal the desperate if they send you their money. Woe to you wealthy, self-indulgent preachers who become rich on the backs of the lonely, the poor, the disillusioned, the diseased, and the desperate, who are told to give you their money as an act of faith so that God is obligated to make them healthy and wealthy. Woe to you who indulge in $10,000 a night hotel rooms, claim revelations from God, 
Spend $112,000 a month on your private jet with money taken from the most desperate people. Woe to you, you will not escape judgment. Unquote. For our conclusion today, stepping back, God's word is so rich. From these four little verses, it reveals so much. Let's look at the two important lessons that we learned today. First, and as we have observed elsewhere in the scripture, it clearly does teach sacrificial giving is a godly character. Jesus does give us a lesson on what God looks for. As John Calvin observes, and this is John Calvin's way of talking back when he did, so follow me on this. In two ways, says Calvin, this teaching is useful. For the poor, who appear not to have a power of doing good, are encouraged by our Lord, not to hesitate to express their affections cheerfully out of their slender means. If they consecrate themselves, they are offering which appears to man to be worthless. It will nonetheless be valuable if they are presented all, it will not be less valuable than if they are presented all the treasures of creatures. On the other hand, those who possess greater abundance are reminded that it is not enough if the amount of their abundance and generosity, it is not enough if that amount they greatly surpass the poor and common people because it is of less value in the sight of God than a rich man out of his vast heap should bestow a moderate sum than a poor man in giving very little should exhaust his store. Secondly, this whole section of Scripture is a warning to guard against false teachers who would lead people astray for their own gain. As Paul instructed Timothy and Ed read for us before, verses um, 2 through 10 of 1 Timothy 6, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which, people, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among the people who are depraved in mind and depra deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, and in many, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The warning turned into a condemnation for the Jewish leaders. Jesus is angry, and that's why he'll destroy this den of robbers. Judgment came on that system 40 years later. It came on the nation 
continues now in that temple, on that city, on that land, until Jesus comes again. The writer of Hebrews directs us to the source of truth. Hebrews 4, 11 to 13. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing into the division of the soul and spirit of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that it bears in our hearts and minds. Thank you for loving us when we were so far from you, saving us. Thank you for the gift of salvation. Thank you for the truth, the true understanding of your word. Help us to hold to the truth and make no tolerance for error, but to be protectors of the truth and protectors of your church. Help us to proclaim what your word says. Lord, we ask that you give us a renewed commitment to walk with Christ in obedience. Those of us who know you, to be faithful, to love you with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength, and to love one another, to be servants in every sense, slaves of Christ, who will proclaim the glories of the gospel far and wide. For we ask these things in Jesus' name.